0: Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Amit Bindra and Max Barrick. We are members of the board of directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower
1: workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Max Barrick.
0: And I'm Amit Bindra.
1: And today we are lucky enough to be bringing back one of our earlier guests and one of our favorite guests, David Weldon, or David G. Weldon, I should say, who is of counsel with Barnes & Thornburg LLP, a very large, reputable, and well-respected firm. David works with business owners, in-house counsel, and HR professionals. David received his JD from John Marshall Law School and graduated magna cum laude and the order of John Marshall, I guess formerly John Marshall, now University of Illinois Chicago, right?
2: That's correct. It went through multiple name changes, but I think UIC law is the current name. It's hard to keep up with.
1: In any case, welcome, sir.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me back. I guess I didn't didn't do too bad last time to be a repeat visitor. Mm-hmm.
1: No, you were our first, but not our last defense side attorney to to brave uh, to brave talking to two zealots like Amit and I. So thanks for coming back again. Happy
2: to be a trailblazer.
1: Sure. So, Today, we wanted to talk a little bit different. Last time, I think we talked a little bit about just your approach to your practice, how you got to where you were, and sort of the work you do generally. We want to focus on a specific aspect of your work because, candidly, not a lot of us do a lot of big L labor work in our bar. There are some who do but none that I know of who do it from the management side. So we'd love to talk to you about your work doing that and just some big trends that have happened because there have been, if anybody follows your LinkedIn presence, which I do encourage them to do because I think you post a lot of good content about what's going on at the NLRB and different trends that I think are educational to everybody. You've been up to date on a lot of the big L labor stuff going on. So we want to focus on that today.
2: Yeah, and there's been no shortage of changes, I would say would be the the headline, if you look back six months, a year, even a couple of years, since the the labor board really got reconstituted, so to speak, under President Biden, he got all his picks. It's been daily, if not multiple a day changes, and many of them pretty significant. So happy to talk about all that.
1: Great. and I, And I think I'm going to guess not having followed these things quite as closely, because the last time this happened, I was not a practicing attorney yet, that any time an administration changes parties, the makeup, posture, and just sort of bent of the NLRB probably does a 180 each time.
2: It really does. I mean, we talk about in the traditional labor It's it's cliche, but nevertheless, it's instructive. We talk about the pendulum sort of swinging with the change in administration. So when the White House changes from one party to the other, there is this really sea change you know pendulum shift and that's because of the way the labor board operates does business and and what its membership looks like but i would say before we talk more specifically about that and the changes we've seen specifically under the biden administration even understanding that pendulum swing that that we always see as practitioners this pendulum shift has been historic i think intentionally if you look at even what president biden has repeatedly said about wanting to be the most pro-union, pro-labor, pro-employee administration in history. He's really lived up to that billing. So if you compare it even with the most recent change into the Obama administration or out of the Obama administration, those changes that were made under each of those shifts pale really in comparison to what we've seen going from Trump to Biden.
1: Before well, we, be, I'm sorry, Ahmed, but Before we dive into the specifics, David, can you just give a brief overview? Shame on us for not <laughs> covering this yeah. earlier. W- what is the makeup of the labor, the National Labor Relations Board? Sort of, what does it look like in terms of its that board, and what is its directive or authority? Like, what is the NLRB supposed to really regulate and do for the young
2: sure? Nation? And it's a little confusing too because there is an agency called the National Labor Relations Board. sits in Washington, D.C. But also within the National Labor Relations Board, the agency is the group of five individuals that are commonly referred to as, quote, the board or the labor board. So really, if you look at the agency level, again, it sits in D.C., the labor board is tasked statutorily with overseeing and administering and enforcing federal law called the National Labor Relations Act. And that's a very antiquated federal law, similar in some respects in terms of its age and how antiquated it is in modern day with the Fair Labor Standards Act on the employment side. So that's what the agency does. It oversees this law with respect only to private sector workers. So if you're in the public sector, you're not under the jurisdiction of the National Labor Relations Board you would be under the jurisdiction of a state labor board. So in Illinois, for example, if you're a school teacher, public school teacher, you are overseen by a separate agency. It's sort of a mini NLRB is the easy way to think of it, called the IELRB, the Illinois Educational Labor Relations Board. If you're a policeman or a fireman or another public sector worker that's not educational, you're overseen by a different labor board. So the the key to keep in mind is that when we're talking today about the National Labor Relations Board, we're talking about private sector workforce, throughout the country, nothing public sector. And obviously public sector is more heavily unionized by far than the private sector, but that's the agency. And then as I mentioned, the labor board itself is a group of five individuals who are appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate. Those five individuals each serve five-year terms and those terms stagger such that one board member rolls off each year. And when we talked about a minute ago the pendulum swing, that's because historically the norm has always been that of those five members of the labor board, three come from the political party of the administration that's currently in office. So under President Trump, for example, there were three Republican members and two Democrats. Now under President Biden, there are three Democratic members and two Republicans. And because of that, the Labor Board then does follow the political party, political leanings of whatever the current administration is. And that's why, in sort of a long way of explaining, we do see these shifts because once the board gets reformed under the current administration, it tends to shift back to, to bring the Labor Board's policies and case law back in line with the whatever the current political party is.
0: And this is going to be somewhat of a basic question for you. But then What does the board do in terms of impacting day-to-day stuff, uh, policies, case law, et cetera?
2: It does a lot in this space. And that's because the labor board is really unique, at least if you look at other labor and employment related agencies. If you think, for example, on the employment side of the Department of Labor or the EEOC or OSHA, none of those agencies are like the National Labor Relations Board in the sense that the labor board is quasi-adjudicative, quasi-judicial meaning it does have the ability to issue rules and regulations like those other agencies we just talked about. It has the ability to investigate violations of federal labor law like those other agencies we talked about. But where it really differs is it again, has this five-member body that serves like a, an agency court, really, if you want to think of it that way, and it issues decisions. So it is both, has both a, a prosecutorial or enforcement arm, And an adjudicative arm. And so as a result of that, the amount to which and the extent to which the labor board can impact labor law's policies is far greater than most of its peers if you look at the employment agencies.
0: And here's another basic question. Are there then administrative judges that preside over individual cases?
2: There are. And and the labor board, you could take a whole class and just trying to understand again, this this agency was founded so long ago that that some of the way it's created doesn't really have a, a a parallel in terms of agencies you see now. But yes, so again, there's if we look at it from the top down, there's the five member labor board. Really think of them as, as kind of the court, the Supreme Court, if you will, of labor law. Then within the labor board, there are two or three different offices. There's the general counsel's office. Think of that almost as like the US Solicitor General. That is the lawyer who represents the labor board in enforcement proceedings and so on. So they become the prosecutor. If a company or a union for that matter is alleged to a violated labor law, it's the general counsel of the labor board that would prosecute those. And then there are is a separate what's called a division of judges, and that is all of the administrative law judges, and they're located throughout the country. That serve kind of as a trial court, basically be the closest analog. So you can see already that there's really no equivalent in terms of employment law. So take a typical situation more unfair labor practice charges, which are the claims that are brought before the labor board, more of those are brought against employers than unions, although there are equal rights that apply both ways. In a typical case, an individual employee would file an unfair labor practice charge, basically a claim or complaint with the labor board. It's investigated at a regional level because the labor board has regional offices all over the country. And then if the labor board determines as a result of its investigation that there might be merit, it gets turned over to the general counsel's office. So the labor board's general counsel's office then takes on the role of prosecutor. And if that shift right there, I think you can see in here is where it differs. If it's the EEOC or the DOL, they'll investigate, they'll issue some determination. And then the parties are largely on their own. Obviously, the EEOC does have the ability to prosecute, but it wouldn't be prosecuting in front of its own judges. It would be bringing that matter in court. Whereas in the labor board context, you're truly prosecuting cases before the labor board's administrative law judges. And those decisions, again, can be appealed up or in some cases can go directly to that five-member DC-based labor board. And then in turn, you can end up in federal court. So I think you can probably hear and your listeners can appreciate how different it is. And that's part of what makes it so interesting to work for is it's really a very unique agency in terms of the way it operates, but it's incredibly powerful because it has all those different arms.
0: Yeah, that's super fascinating. And so kind of at the top of this discussion, you mentioned there's been a historic shift. Is that, to walk us through that then. Is it is this more unique than the Obama administration? And if so, how?
2: It is in terms of, again... I don't think anyone will quibble with the notion that if you've been doing labor law enough, there's always that change. We know as practitioners that when the political party of the White Office changes, there will be pretty significant changes. And often you can sort of foreshadow because some of these issues, to be honest, go back and forth every four to eight years. And it's sort of what's the latest on independent contractors or joint employment. It's some overlap with things we see in the employment space. But I would say, well, that hasn't changed under the Biden administration, the extent to which it's changed, both in terms of the number of different initiatives. And then if you look at some of those discrete initiatives, how far left uh, pro-union, pro-employee this current labor board is moving is truly historic. And again, as I said earlier, that's, that's not unintentional. That's coming down directly from President Biden himself to say that he wants this agency to flex its muscle, really.
1: So that's a good segue into what some of those changes are. And now Marty Walsh is, I believe, the Secretary of Labor, right?
2: Yeah, he's over at the, at the Department of Labor.
1: Right. OK, so which obviously operates a little bit differently. So so getting back to the NLRB, what are some of the big changes or shakeups that you are sort of alluding to that that have come in the last year plus?
2: Well, I think more of them, at least at this point, have been kind of on the general counsel's arm or the enforcement arm. So as we talked about, the board itself issues decisions. Think of them like court rulings. They're precedential. They're binding. They don't tend to stick as long as we see in courts, right, because they can always be undone and the labor board has a history of undoing itself. But that's a slow sort of adjudicative process. The quicker changes and sometimes the more significant are on the day-to-day issues that the general counsel herself in this case, a woman named Jennifer Abruzzo, who again was appointed by President Burton, she is the general counsel of the labor board. Given that role of being really the top prosecutor and, and kind of head investigator, the general counsel has the ability to set policy initiatives and, and those can impact day-to-day things like, what are those regional offices we alluded to earlier? How are they investigating? What are they, what are they wanting in terms of settlements? What sort of new initiatives are they seeking to prosecute and put before the board? So there have been many, many that, that GC Abruzzo has championed. Some of the more recent ones that have been pretty impactful in terms of day-to-day are, are just damages is one big piece. What sort of damages is the general counsel's office seeking both to settle a case, and then if it's being prosecuted before those judges or up to the labor board, what, what relief are they ultimately seeking? The National Labor Relations Act has historically been a law that's make whole remedies, meaning just putting the individual or individuals back in the position they were in. It's not a statute under which there are penalties or entitlement to attorney's fees or punitive damages or consequential damages. And the general counsel has really shifted that. So she is seeking actively to broaden the remedies, the idea being that the Labor Act doesn't have enough teeth. Uh, that's at least the sentiment that the general counsel has said, that that it should be more like some of the employment laws that have a little bit more teeth to them. So what that's meant is is that these regional offices, when they're investigating, no longer are are willing to accept just make whole remedies. They really want full blown damages. And to give you an illustration of that, take a typical uh, oversimplified sort of employee discharge case employees have the right to engage in certain protected activity under federal labor law, which I'm sure we'll get into more. And if they are discharged, for example, for engaging in those, it's akin in many ways to a discrimination claim. It's, it's protected activity. You can't do it. But when those claims historically have been brought, the typical remedy is that if the labor board prevails, the employee has to be reinstated and there's back pay. And that was the end of it. So if it's two months, three months, you pay that back and you reinstate. In those cases now, the general counsel's office is saying that's not enough. We're gonna we're gonna demand more. What about, say, car payments that employee might have missed while he or she was unemployed? What about house payments? What about the loss of medical coverage or other things? Maybe that in turn resulted in a loss of childcare. She's looking much more broadly and expanding the remedy. So that's that's At least day-to-day, one of the biggest issues we're seeing is that the violations are resulting in much bigger damages asked on the part of the labor board.
0: And that actually is a good segue too, because what are things then under the law that employees can engage in that employers cannot try to stop?
2: So the, the concept there is called protected concerted activity. It's a very antiquated term, but it appears in the law itself. And again, the closest analog I could give you, it it, it holds the legal sort of weight of being a member of a particular race or over 40 years old. It is kind of the crux of any claim that an employee might bring, at least in the run of the mill claims. And protected concerted activity is a term that's incredibly difficult to define. It has a couple of components, protected and concerted, and those mean different things. So protected means that employees under federal labor law can engage in certain conduct relating to terms and conditions of employment. So if it has a connection to the workplace in terms and conditions, it's protected. The second piece is it has to be concerted, meaning single employee related issues are not protected. Again, you have to, you have to conceptualize that this law really came about in the context of unionizing and that sort of environment. So the, the conduct needs to not just be protected relating to the workplace. It also has to involve multiple employees. And if both of those links are met, then any conduct is protected. And that means an employer can't fire you. So again, we take a, a, an oversimple example. Two or three employees are sitting around in the break room and they're talking about their pay. Geez, we're just not paid enough. This is really unfair. Maybe we should go to our supervisor and say, we deserve a dollar or more. You know, the guys down the street are making more than us. Or maybe the premiums that we pay just aren't enough. If you're engaging in that sort of conduct and then your employer fires you, disciplines you. You have a viable claim under federal labor law, and that's the type of claim, probably the most common sort of claim that we see because that concept can be very broadly interpreted.
0: And so in the last year, we've seen various news stories about people who've tried to organize a union. Can you give us a quick recap of some of what's been happening across the country?
2: Yeah, it's really been, I mean, again, uh, not to use the word historic again, speech. change. I mean, those aren't overstatements. The amount of new union organizing that we've seen really since about midway through the pandemic, I would say, if you had to kind of put a line on it, it it's been significant. You're seeing different types of employers be unionized than historically have been. And you're seeing workers organizing that aren't your prototypical union employees, A lot of times when we think about unionized workforces, we think of steel plants and manufacturing facilities and textile plants. And, you know, there's certain sort of classifications that just immediately come to mind, again, because that's where this law developed. What we don't think of and what historically has not been typical is for young workers in retail spaces, for example, to organize the way they are. If you look at, just to pull from the headlines, Starbucks or Apple. Those are two great examples of companies that two or three years ago, I think most people would have thought, wouldn't really be in danger of being unionized, both because of the, of the size of those companies and the financial capabilities they have to remain union-free, if that's what they so want, but also just because if you go in a Starbucks or you go to an Apple store, those don't look like what you think of when you think of a union employee. You think of sort of the the older generation, man or woman with a hard hat in hand, with a lunchbox. And so it's really been, I mean, just Starbucks alone, hundreds of union organizing drives in the last year alone, and those have been overwhelmingly successful. And I think in addition to just the actual union organizing of those particular employers, it's really taken this concept of unionization and put it front and center on the national headlines where people who didn't even really understand what it was, or maybe hadn't thought about it. Now it's kind of become, you know, a talking point amongst all sorts of people. And that of course is, is all great for unions because they've kind of gotten their word out now and more people are talking about unions. So yeah, the recap would be just amazing explosion of union activity across the country.
1: What, what, what before we get to the process of what that looks like why not meant to be a dumb question just to i, I think just to put it out there why is it that big companies like let's take starbucks for example because howard schultz i know there was a recording at some point where he basically you know there have been allegations of union busting that kind of you talked about the steel miller it makes me think of like i think of the coal mines and the molly Maguires and the pinkertons and like infiltrating the the union with the pinkerton detectives and maybe having dubious practices you know, Schultz was, has been accused of a lot of that sort of conduct, albeit a more modern version. Why are folks like him and why are employers so deathly afraid of this or so opposed maybe is a better way to put it or concerned by this?
2: Well, and, and this is where, again, disclaimer that I am a management lawyer, but I, I can give you yeah, first, from, your persp- say-
1: from your perspective and from your client's perspectives generally, because we, we yeah. want to, you know, we want to understand.
2: And, and I think, there's sort of this myth out there and I've seen it firsthand That I think it is a myth. The myth, the rationale would be, or if you hear it from the far left, it would be companies don't like unions because unions negotiate better benefits, better pay and companies don't want to pay. And I think that's a gross oversimplification. Are economics a factor? Sure they are. I mean, a a company is a business and a business needs to profit. And if profits are jeopardized or threatened, then that's not necessarily a company's best interest or an employee's best interest either, right? Because those profits flow down. But, but I would say that totally misses the mark in terms of what most of these companies think. And it's unfortunate that that's sort of the narrative. The reality is a big piece of this and why companies, many of them, prefer to be union free. And that's not every company. There are many companies. I think Microsoft, by the way, if you look recently, has pretty much welcomed union activity. They put out, a, I think it was the CEO or another executive said, we're aware of kind of what's going on in this space. And we're not going to push back. We're not going to take a strong anti-union approach. We'll be flexible. In it. And, that's, and that's a very novel approach that I think we'll see more of. But, but back to your question, it really can be boiled down in many ways to sort of a loss of control on the part of the employer. When a union comes on board, the union steps into the shoes of the employees in terms of becoming legally its bargaining representative. It's almost like a lawyer who's advocating on behalf of a client, but it's different. But in that sense, once a union is certified by the board and the exclusive bargaining representative, the company's dealings, primarily then with respect to employees are through that union. You lose that direct connection, that direct ability to to walk down the hall, speak to employees. You lose the ability to be flexible and make changes on the fly. And many times those changes can benefit employees. Instead, you you enter into this sort of relationship where you're, you're dealing kind of with an agent. And more often than not, you're negotiating a two, three, four year, 30, 40, 50 page long, basically glorified employment contract that locks you into terms. And so once that contract's negotiated, there's just not the flexibility to say, hey, listen, we're going to make this change. We're going to do this. We hear you on this. It, you just lose kind of all that. And that's a big deal to companies. It, it certainly adds cost. But again, I think that's a, it's just a, a misstatement to say that that's all it's about. Companies generally prefer to have that flexibility, be able to talk with employees, and that's something you hear a lot about when you listen to companies who are saying, you know, why why do we want to be union free? We want to have that direct line of communication, the open door policy, whatever cliches. But but there's some truth to that in terms of the ability to operate the business and in the company's view, do what's best by employees without being stuck into this rigid situation that in the modern workforce is is sometimes an odd fit.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the steel mill or the coal mine, like whatever example, like y- you go back to the Gilded Age or you go back to, hey, the 90 hour work week and no real minimum wage and like safety conditions are a joke. And like, there are good reasons we have unions, right? But the workforce is more modern, as you put it. And like, this is obviously a plaintiff side podcast, so I want to be very careful here, but every situation is different. And there are a lot of reasons why unions can be good or bad in a given situation. And they quite frankly, there are unfair labor practice claims that people in our bar will bring against unions for certain reasons, because they do operate in an antiquated way. One that comes to mind colloquially, right, is like you have allegations that a lot of some of the older unions where you have older, very white unions that may not be as friendly to a more diverse workforce in yeah. the way that they operate. So I think you know, there's always multiple sides to every matter. And, you know, it's, it's good to have different perspectives on it, I think.
2: Yeah. And if you look at, if you look at unions, I mean, Google union misdeeds, there's some, some interesting, some of these unions have gotten themselves into a lot of trouble. And I think that's part of what hurt them and tarnished their reputation for years. And that's part of the big reason why, particularly when you look at like the millennial generation, they generally haven't been interested before because they see it as sort of their dads or their granddads, oh, yeah, there's a union out there. What's that going to do for me? You know, I'm a customer rep at, at Apple. What does my granddad who worked at the textile plant know about me? We're, we're just in different situations. What could a union do for me?
0: And you're more plugged into this, obviously, than we are. Do you have a sense of what is then causing that movement, that historic shift towards unionization?
2: It's a, it's a multitude of factors, and I'm sure there are sociologists and all out there studying it, but I think the pandemic was a big piece in terms of The impact it had on the workforce and how it allowed, particularly with, you know, employees that that maybe started working remotely for some time or changed the manner of communication, it just kind of changed the thing on the part of employees. And I would say in part there too was a huge ripple effect. Sort of once, you know, these big name companies started to fall you immediately saw the dominoes also starting to fall and then waking up. And another piece of it has been what I kind of think of and what's often referred to as, as grassroots unions, meaning not the teamsters, the food and commercial workers, the steel workers. There's no legal requirement that if you're in the context of wanting to be organized and represented by a union, you must choose from these teams. It's not like the NBA, where if you want to play, you got to be on one of these teams there's no requirement that that any recognized international union be your union. You can make your own union. And I think there was a misunderstanding about that, particularly by these younger workers. And once some of them clued into, hey, we can have our own union. We don't need to deal with some of these, again, our grandfather's unions. That was a big awakening. So it's been a, a lot of different factors that have sort of been come to light and, and just really shifted things dramatically. I think When we look back in 10, 20 years, I think this is going to be one of the most historic shifts in terms of union organizing that we've seen probably since the National Labor Relations Act was first adopted.
0: And so walk us then through how do you create a union? What is that process?
2: Yeah, so again, if you're covered, we're talking more about the the NLRA, the private sector side, but the public sector, I'll tell you, is not that much different because most of those mini laws were really modeled after the, the private sector law. So if you're covered, your employer is covered by the National Labor Relations Act, you work in the private sector, there's some connection to commerce, and there's some decent revenue coming in, or basically the the boiled down jurisdictional components, then what a union needs to do to really initiate the process on behalf of employees is it needs to get what we call authorization cards. They're a little, usually three by five index card piece of paper. They don't have to be, but that's what they tend to look like. And it's a simple card that basically an employee signs to say, I'm interested, is effectively what it's doing. I'm interested in being represented by this particular union that's listed. So it might say at the top steelworkers, local 22, and then there's some sort of legal language and the employee signs it. A union needs to get that signed authorization card from 30% of the employees that are within whatever bargaining unit, whatever group of employees it seeks to represent. So if you've got a grocery store and the union wants to represent cashiers, the union needs signed authorization cards from 30% of all the cashiers. Now the union can choose basically in a a particular workforce, what groups of employees it might want to represent or not represent. So they have the ability to kind of pick a population that they want. They need 30% of employees to sign those cards And then they can take those cards into the local regional office of the labor board and say, we've got cards from 30% of these workers. We want to initiate the process. The labor board opens a complaint. The employer is then notified that that union is seeking to organize their workers. And then a whole administrative process kicks off in terms of who's, what employees are represented, what aren't. Uh, An election might ultimately occur unless that employer voluntarily recognizes the union, which they generally don't. And ultimately, what will happen is an election gets scheduled, the secret ballot election. It looks like an old school presidential other election. The labor board will actually come out to the work site. A labor board worker will be there. They set up their own little tent looking polls and employees will walk out of the building or walk down the hall, depending on where the election is. They step into the little ballot like we did 20 years ago to vote for president. They check, do they want to be represented by the union or do they not want to be represented by the union? Those are the only two choices. The Labor Board counts all those votes, and in order for the union to be certified, meaning recognized as the bargaining representative, it needs to get 50% plus one of the employees who voted, and the of the employees who voted can be a significant thing. It's not 50% plus one of whoever's in that union. So if we have 100 grocery store workers that the union is seeking to represent, they don't need 51 votes. They only need 50 plus one of whoever votes. If 20 people vote, they only need 11. And so voter turnout in labor board elections is is hugely important because there are all sorts of studies that that show that more often than not, employees who turn out to vote, who walk down the hall to cast that ballot, because it's optional, they don't have to, those tend to more often than not be union supporters. The folks who are anti-union, who aren't supportive, tend to just not. So that that process can have some interesting outcomes. But that's in a nutshell. You end up with an election. And then either the the union becomes the representative or it doesn't become the representative.
0: And then during this process, what are things an employer can and cannot do? We talked a little bit about prohibited activity, but I'm sure it's different here.
2: From the moment that representation petition, that's the paper that's filed with the union or by the union with the National Labor Organization. From the moment that paper is filed to really kind of start the process, the rules change and there are all sorts of restrictions on what employers can do. There are some restrictions on what unions can do, but we we refer to that time really as sort of a critical period. We talk about laboratory conditions. There's all these legal terminology, but the gist of it is the rules change and there are more restrictions on what can be said because at that point in time, and the employers then on notice that this union is on board, and it's a very critical time period. It's very accelerated in, in most instances in terms of the moment, the time between when that petition is filed to an election is, is often three, four, five weeks. It's, it's pretty accelerated. What an employer generally can't do is it, it can't threaten employees, it can't interrogate employees, it can't make promises to employees to basically try to give them sweetheart deals. Hey, if you, if you just vote no for the union, we'll promise to give you a $2 pay raise and it can't conduct surveillance of employees. The law in that situation is what it's trying to do is to create a, a level, fair playing field where the union on the one hand and the employer on the other hand are sort of equally limited or equally armed, depending on which side you look at it, in terms of what they can do. We won't want any misconduct. We want a fair fight and a fair election.
1: To to piggyback off of that, what what are some gray areas? I guess within that. So if that's the the theoretical, we want, as you said, laboratory conditions. We want to keep this as un unaffected as possible where is some of the gray area that, that you see that's maybe not clearly on one side or the other or is skirting the line? Obviously nothing with your clients, but things that you just are aware of or see in general or hear a bit about.
2: Well, I mean, the standards I just outlined it, I think you can probably hear as you think about it. It, it itself is pretty gray. I mean, what, what, for example, is a threat and is not a threat? What's a promise and not a promise? Now there are legions of labor board cases on various fact patterns. Supervisors said this, Company said this, but much like in the court context, each fact pattern is unique. So we have these kind of guiding principles, but how you take those to a particular workforce to determine was what Joe, the supervisor said in that break room that day, was that a threat or was it not? And that goes back then to the issue of whoever's overseeing all this at the labor board level, whoever's the final arbiter makes a huge impact because the way the Biden labor board views what is and is not a threat or an unlawful promise is very different from the way the Trump board would view those same things. So I would say from the practitioner standpoint, it makes it very interesting because the rules of the road sort of change every four to eight years. And you really have to tailor your strategy because you know that what previously may have been okay, may not be okay now. And obviously trying to get supervisors and at least on the company side, To understand those concepts in in the reality of the workplace and what those discussions really are going to look like is very challenging. But there are those legal restrictions, and unions can and frequently do file, again, those unfair labor practice claims during that period to say, notwithstanding the fact that there's an election coming up, we basically want to preserve our rights and objections. Because this conduct happened, we think it's tainted the election, and there's all sorts of legal maneuvering that can go on there. And again, to be fair, it cuts both ways. Uh, And unions have some restrictions, far fewer, but they do have some similar sorts of restrictions on what they can do and what they can say. Again, the the idea, at least, is that it's a fair fight where neither side is, is having a leg up in terms of what they can and can't do
0: to sort of sway favor. So what is, like just hypothetically speaking, just so I can conceptualize it, a legal way for an employer to, I guess, campaign against union activity or unionization?
2: Well, you can always make the starting point is you can always make factually accurate statement. A, a factually accurate statement is not going to get you into trouble. Promises are not factually accurate, right? that's that's a promise of something future. You can say, for example, things like, if the union is certified, then we won't be able to negotiate directly. If the union comes on board, we might have to make changes in terms of the workplace. I mean, and you can even see, as I say, you could, If you wrote those down, you might quibble. Well, was there an implicit promise in there? Was there an implicit threat? And that's what makes it so interesting. But often, those are some of the key talking points. Going back to what we talked about earlier from the company side, we're going to lose the ability to talk to you. And conversely, you're going to lose the ability to talk to us. We're going to have to talk through a middleman. We're going to lose that flexibility that we otherwise would have. You're going to be paying dues, which means it comes out of your pay. And, you know, be careful, maybe the union's overpromising promising uh, what they're going. So there's really kind of this informational war that goes on during that period between the union on the one hand and the company over trying to get its message out while at the same time, walking a tightrope and tiptoeing around, not wanting to prompt uh, an unfair labor practice claim from the other side.
0: And let's say that happens. So what is then the remedy for one of those claims? And how long did that process take?
2: Well, in that context, if we're talking about after that petition has been filed with the labor board, they move very quickly because they understand that there might be an election. And there's all different sorts of forks in the road, ways it can go. Remedies, again, can vary. The historic remedy in that instance, if the labor board finds that the employer, for example, that's the more typical claim, said something it shouldn't have, did something it, didn't, it couldn't have during that period, the, the labor board can order a rerun of election and basically a do-over. What, one of the things that the general counsel has pushed for is she's pushed effectively for a remedy where instead of having a do-over election because it was tainted, is the argument, she said, well, in some instances, the conduct of the employer during that time period was, was so harmful to the union and to the employees, we shouldn't even redo the election. We should just skip that stuff. We should find then that the union should be certified, and that the employer would have to recognize. So an employer in that instance could lose the ability to even go to election. It basically would, from the employer side of things, would have a union imposed on it without ever seeking votes from individual employees. And that's a, that's a drastic change. as As compared to historically, there's always been this sort of sanctity of a secret ballot election, and allowing employees to choose whether or not they want to be represented.
1: As usual, we're 2 years into the pandemic and I still can't figure out how to hit the mute button. This is I incredible. love it
0: every time.
1: We're going to be on to the next software by the time <laughs> I get this one right. Every single show. Yeah. Um so so oh man, David, I want to switch gears one more time today and and switch off of this topic a little bit. Um so One of the other things that I've seen you post on LinkedIn a little bit was some theoretical limitations on employer fees, free speech rights with respect to the NLRB and the NLRA. Can you talk a little bit generally, like what because one of my favorite things to see on social media is people getting fired by a private employer after saying something racist or sort of ridiculous that, you know, you probably wouldn't want one of your employees saying and then screaming free speech without any self-awareness that the First Amendment doesn't, you know, apply to private companies. But that said, there are First Amendment implications to what happens in the workplace. Can you talk a bit about what it means to, to have employer or employee free speech rights in the context of all of this?
2: Yeah, and I think you've hit, I mean, that, that's the fact pattern certainly I see the most is, is this misunderstanding, frankly, that in the private sector, there is sort of this, this free speech constitution, right? Mean, it just doesn't exist. There's the, you know, freedoms that exist in the workplace, and then there's sort of limited restrictions on that. And it comes back the other direction, I would say, too. I mean, there's always sort of this tussling between what an employee can say and what may or may not be protected and and what an employer in in response can say, and we see that it it comes up in the labor board context specifically, for example, if you go back to that protected concerted activity concept that I just talked about. One of the interesting questions that can and frequently does come up is, what what if we've got employees, if we use my sitting around the break room talking about how they're underpaid or whatever, that would seem to be pretty clearly protected concerted activity. But what if they get into a tussle with a supervisor? What if when they go to raise the issue with that supervisor, they get nasty and they curse them out? Or are there are cases in which employees throw chairs at supervisors, do other things? At, at what point legally are we going to say, at the labor board, because they're generally the one making this question unless it gets up to the federal courts of appeal, at what point does that misconduct really cause the employees to lose their legal protection? we have sort of these competing notions, right? That, that we wanna protect employees, but even the labor board recognizes, we don't wanna sanction employees to behave badly. So how do we balance this? So that kind of implicates some of the free speech issues. And those are very interesting cases because sometimes I will tell you that the, the level of misconduct that it takes to lose the protection is much higher than than certainly many of my clients think they think if you if an employee mouths off and they lose well it's not it's not that clear the labor board gives a lot of leeway to to kind of the the modern workforce and and what level of misconduct is tolerable recognizing that you know there will be tussles in the workplace
0: yeah i'm assuming there's some factors given to to if you throw a chair at another employee, regardless of whether or not they're a supervisor, that other employee has some rights as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's always balancing all that. And well, this and is I, oh, sorry. No, I talked too much anyway. Go ahead. <laughs> I was gonna well, I'm gonna change it slightly. This is a slightly different area of law, but it, I'm assuming, for example, hypothetically, if you like stormed the capital and an employer found out, it's okay to terminate that employee without having a risk of an an LRA or a different type of claim.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose that the opportunistic, creative employee counsel in that instance could seek to still file that sort of claim. They would have to come up with some argument that whatever that off-duty conduct was somehow related back to the workplace. There'd have to be that nexus, like we see in the employment space too, and there'd have to be awareness on the part of the employer. So it still would have to tie back. But but certainly, this general counsel's office is is taking that protected concerted activity concept and pushing it pretty far to the extremes in terms of historically where it's been. So under this labor board, you don't know. They might find that sort of fact pattern to still implicate labor law rights under the, the National Labor Relations Act.
1: Well, and there's, you know, when we, we see situations too, right, like you get in these single plaintiff or even multi-plaintiff employment cases right where there's a harassment or discrimination claim and you get into these situations where that's the backdrop and then these arguments break out or you know the work environment is toxic. Not I'm not gonna use the hostile term, but right like there's a toxicity to it. People are not getting along. I've seen cases where there's something called the provocation doctrine, right? Where like I had a case where a guy was just getting screamed at by his boss every single day for like the better part of three weeks and like snaps and tells the boss to go F himself. And it's like, well, you know, I don't know a lot of employers who are going to tolerate that at the same time, right? Like you just got berated every day for three weeks straight. Like, we all have a breaking point. So, like, how that stuff gets managed is always—it's it, it, interesting where there's this interplay of big L labor, you know, lower, lowercase, whatever we want to call it, employment law, and and where those things overlap, diverge, and are sort of in you know, kind of moment to moment.
2: Yeah, and, and and it sort of raises another issue for for me that 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 I always find interesting and I like to talk about with other labor and employment lawyers. I don't understand why labor, I mean, I get it, right? Labor and employment are thrown together because they, they impact the workforce and employees. But it, I think it's become clear, just even from our discussion today and, and to your listeners that maybe that, that don't have much insight, particularly on in the, the labor side, they're very different areas of the law in terms of the principles, sort of the day-to-day mechanics when you got an agency like the Labor Board. Uh, they're yes they're both workforce related but it's almost a shame that they get lumped together and I always say I always like to say on behalf of, of the labor lawyers which i feel like are the minority amongst the labor and employment everybody's a labor and employment lawyer but most of them I always say are, are more employment lawyers than labor lawyers, much less labor and employment lawyers. They're very different areas of the law, t- completely different. And, and many employment lawyers, if you push them, will say, listen, I, I call myself a labor and employment lawyer, but I, I don't really know what labor law is other than the Department of Labor, which is not really labor labor, so to speak, as you called it, capital L.
1: Yeah, I I, I've, I think I've stopped using labor in, in how I describe myself because I only know just enough to be dangerous. And, you know, there good a for few- you.
2: We don't want false advertising. Don't hold yourself <laughs> out to be something you're not. You know, but,
0: and Max and I have talked about this, at, maybe even in our first like, episode of this show. Employment law covers so much different stuff, because even under the umbrella of just employment, excluding labor, you have TAM, you have non-compete, you have discrimination, Title Seven, Section 1981, state law claims, common law retaliation, whistleblower stuff. There is so much stuff out there. And labor, I think it's definitely its own, it's obvious its own category. I learned so much just listening to you today.
2: Yeah. And another misconception too, not to drop the bomb here as we're probably close to wrapping up, but we could spend a whole nother session on a misconception that we haven't talked about yet today. And that's labor law only applies to unionized workforces. Total misconception. You don't have to have any union in place, threatened to be in place for labor law to come into play. And that's one of the big initiatives that, again, there were so many initiatives of this particular labor board that I probably didn't do it justice to, to try and highlight those. just We could spend days talking about the initiatives, but, but that's been a big piece of it, is getting the word out of that very point, that we at the labor board can protect you, even if you're not in a union, considering being in a union, and enforcing in those non-union workforces the rights that exist. This protected concerted activity concept that we've talked about many times just during this talk that applies to any private sector workplace. You don't have to have a union. You can still have those rights. You do have those rights. You can file those claims. And, and honestly, that's a that's a that's an issue that gets a lot of companies into trouble because they think labor law is union. We don't have a union. We don't need to worry about it. And that's increasingly not true. Maybe there was a time when the labor board would sort of leave non-union employers alone, but as we talk about this sort of enlightening this organizing movement this awakening employees now are realizing hey i've got rights under that law and that agency even if we don't have a union here why don't we talk to them why don't we you know pursue that and that's that that's been huge just in and of itself
1: well david this has been so interesting for Amit and I, at least, and and I suspect it will be for our listenership. Maybe we're going to have to bring you back one last time to, to cover a few more of these things sometime in the fall, because Amit and I, our favorite thing to do when we don't have a good guest like yourself is to cover sports employment law sports topics and we had a bunch of questions about the ncaa and athlete unions and major league baseball that we didn't even get to touch on today so you you've got a lot on your plate but maybe we'll be lucky enough to steal you one more time in a couple of months to, to come back and cover that because if if only for amit and i we want to talk about that stuff with you that'd be awesome
0: yeah yeah
2: and there's a lot a lot to unpack there a whole different universe compared to your your normal sort of day-to-day workforces when you look in the sports context and another area where this labor board is absolutely, particularly on the NCAA front, trying to expand its reach and and tentacles.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was it's funny. And I was thinking about I was thinking back to when you were talking about, you know, union bust not union busting, but you know, the tactics that both sides can take. And I remember years ago there was a quarterback for Northwestern, a guy named Kane Coulter. And when Northwestern's athletes, I think, were first starting to talk about that, I remember there was this incident. Where there was a moment where Pat Fitzgerald, Northwestern's football coach, you know, they had this back and forth about it. And it was like, well, you know, if these guys unionize, this might happen or that might happen and kind of jogged my memory. I was like, oh, God, I got to go back and look at what that quote was. And I wonder how that falls into the gray area David mentioned. And if it's, you know, if it was too aggressive, not if it was in the wheelhouse of what's allowed or it falls in that gray area. So so I'm sure you can
2: can even find two colleagues. I mean, I have these discussions, same side of the aisle, right? Similar interests. And we might disagree. Does that cross the line? Does it not? I think that's what makes it so interesting. It leaves room for us as advocates, really, to, to argue on behalf of our clients, because there is enough space in there for good lawyer to make a significant difference.
0: I, as a basketball nerd, I think they're going to renegotiate their CBA. And so I always love following that. And as a, there was a time as a kid, I even read the whole thing. So dude, I may you do that again. You have a, dude, you have a problem. You know, as a Bucks fan, you always wanted to understand the salary cap and like ways in which we could, you know, at some point be good. So I got into it.
2: Well, and you're pretty good now, so no one feels sorry for you. (laughs) And
0: it's your it's your favorite part, my friend. Yeah. So we've done this before with you, so it won't be as much of a surprise, but we like to end our episodes with a shout out of the week. So just something positive you want to shout out. It can be a book, a movie, a TV show, a kid, spouse, pretty much anything you want to shout out.
2: You know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go a little off script. I'm going to shout out an industry, shout out to the childcare, preschool, et cetera, industry. I mean, you talk about coming out of a pandemic for young parents, like, like each of us are, where would we be professionally without the childcare industry? So shout out to all the childcare workers. Thank you. You are essential. And, and thank you for watching my kids so that I can be on lovely podcasts like this.
0: That's great. And I'm going to add to that teachers. I think teachers have just done an incredible job over the last couple of years dealing with all of this. Absolutely. Second that. I
1: I will echo your shout outs. I don't have anything to add that will not be repetitive. David, since you've been kind enough to share a Friday afternoon with us when you have many other things you could be doing professionally or personally with your time. What would you like to plug? Is there anything for your firm, for you, otherwise that you'd like to share coming up that our listeners can check out? I will personally plug your LinkedIn feed because I check it out all the time. I think it's incredibly informative. I think there's a lot of good information about Big L Labor, just trends in labor and employment. And I have to say of all the defense far firm blogs that I that I am kind of aware of in the world. I think Barnes and Thornburg yeah. firms is one of the ones that I see most often when I just Google something. So I will encourage everybody on my own to go check that stuff out because I, I think you guys are great with that.
2: Well, thank you. And that would be it, really. I mean, my LinkedIn page is in, you know, our web ser- website is bt is in Barnes barnesandthornburglaw.com. We've got a labor blog, an employment blog, in addition to all sorts of updates. So go there, check it out. We try to stay on top of everything, but it, man, it's hard with all the updates seemingly daily, multiple times a day. It, it's it's hard to keep track, but but take a look. And obviously if you're listening to this, you have questions or, or need help with anything, reach out to me. Always happy to help.
1: Well, David, thank you so much again for coming on. Hopefully you and I get to draw each other on a case again. I always enjoy working with you. It's nice to have somebody who's cordial and friendly and I consider a professional friend on the other side. So if we don't get to podcast again together sometime soon, which Ahmed and I are going to beg you to come back for that sports labor stuff hopefully we get to see each other again that way
2: yeah i, I never want anyone to sue my clients but if if someone has to them, it's it's good to be if it's people like you or, or i'm a, you know it, it's never fun but it's a shame the only way i get to see you guys in that context is if you've in fact sued my clients. so it's an unfortunate <laughs> reality but to, to that end, sorry clients perspectively and, and maybe we'll see each other
1: well, well, few will get them out of trouble better than you and or disarm tough situations. So thank you again, David, for sharing your incredibly vast wealth of knowledge about this topic and many others with us for your time, for your good work, for the information you put out there and everything. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, guys. Thanks for everybody at home for
0: listening. Please subscribe and share. Our podcast is intended to provide general reviews of employment laws. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinion. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.